On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Uh, won't surprise you that the front pages of today's newspapers all have uh, a pretty common theme. Uh, front page of the Business Post, EU to hit Russia with tougher sanctions for its aggression against Ukraine. EU leaders are set to impose harsher sanctions on Russia in the coming days, including blocking the country's access to the SWIFT global banking system. This front page obviously written before some Russian banks were subjected to that sanction last night. As Russian forces pushed towards Kiev yesterday, meeting heavy Ukrainian resistance, work continued on how the West can respond to the aggression shown by Vladimir Putin over the past week. Ireland was among a group of EU member states last week that had backed removing Russia from SWIFT, which is a messaging system that underpins global financial structures. However, countries including France, Germany and Italy had raised concerns about the impact that such a move would have on the continent's energy supplies. But obviously, as you've been hearing in the news this morning, last night, uh, the European Commission, in alignment with many other Western countries, deciding to ban some Russian um, banks from that system anyway um, also on the front page of the Business Post and this again is a, a taster of some of the content that you'll see in papers um, across the spectrum this morning a group of Ukrainian men living in Ireland have banded together with a plan to travel home to take up arms for their country arguing that it is everybody's duty to fight against the Russian invasion Pavlo Sendyuk who's a 23 year old plumber living in Cork hopes that up to a dozen men will make the trip back to Ukraine as early as tonight. He is marshalling the group along with his father Roman and his friend Maxim Savage, both of whom are Ukrainian natives. The men are flying out of Dublin airport tomorrow on a flight to Krakow in Poland. From there they plan to travel by car towards the Ukrainian border, moving in the opposite direction from the thousands of people attempting to flee the country. It's everyone's duty who is Ukrainian to go there and defend our country, Sergiuk told the Business Post. I'm not going to lie, I'm afraid to go there, but I just have to go. The group has asked other Ukrainians in Ireland to help them with camouflage gear, gloves, sleeping bags and other rations. They've received a number of offers and intend to pick up the supplies tomorrow night before their flight. Uh, the front page of the Mail on Sunday simply has the headline Defiance of a Nation. Ukrainian President Zelensky leads the brave defence of Kiev as Russian troops surround the capital. And as the world sounds horrified at the spiralling humanitarian crisis engulfing Ukraine, fears are growing that Vladimir Putin is about to unleash terrifying new weapons after his invasion of Ukraine stalled. Defiant resistance by Russian soldiers has stopped Russia from seizing major cities and destroyed several armoured mission convoys. Some reports already put the Russian death roll at 1,000 troops. But if you look inside the paper, it talks about the idea of Russia now beginning to use thermobaric uh, missiles or weapons, or at least threatening to use them inside uh, Ukraine's borders, which would be a, a significant step up uh, based on the capability of those. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times, again, similar again, Louise Callahan reporting on the ground from Kiev. Terror stalks the streets. On a sunbathed boulevard in front of a golden-domed cathedral, three young men lay flat on the ground, their chalk-white faces pressed to the tarmac, arms spread, the latest suspect in a frantic hunt for spies and traitors. Over them stood a dozen Ukrainian fighters dressed in camouflage uniforms, armed with assault rifles, who had detained the men moments earlier as they were driving through the city. One of the fighters was rifling through their belongings while another interrogated them. A policeman in a black flak jacket paused from packing boxes of bullets into the back of a car and nodded over at the three prostrate soldiers. Saboteurs, he sneered, maybe Russian. Nobody knew exactly how far away Vladimir Putin's troops and tanks were, but fierce fighting on the outskirts of the capital had kept them in check, and on the third day of the Russian advance, Kiev was still in Russian hands. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, again some speculation about Ireland's next move. Stephen O'Brien reporting last night that the Irish government was finalising plans to ban all Russian flights from the country's airspace as Europe steps up its response to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And again, similar on the front page of the Sunday Independent, Ireland will move to unilaterally ban Russian aircraft from entering Irish airspace in the coming days, even if a ban cannot be agreed at EU level, according to the Foreign Affairs Minister. 
Mr. Simon Coveney. He was speaking to Hugh O'Connell, who was here with me in studio to help go through this morning's papers. Hugh, what can you tell us about what Ireland's got planned? Um, well, as, as uh, Minister Coveney outlined to me and indeed outlined himself this morning in a, in a tweet, um, Ireland plans to ban Russian aircraft and airlines from uh, Russian carriers like Aerofloat, for example, from Irish airspace. Um, even if this isn't agreed at an EU level in the coming days, it's something that um, he's very keen to do. Um, he also was pretty confident with regards to the, uh, uh, this was last night now before the announcement by Ursula von der Leyen, the, the, uh, the, the movement on the SWIFT financial, financial transactions uh, messaging service. And um, he's also said that he's proposed that they uh, that the EU look at examining um, a ban on Russia accessing EU waters for fishing as well. So, right. Uh, but I suppose that one of the more significant things that he said was that he expects a round of sanctions to be agreed this week. The third round would also include some sort of um, diplomatic expulsions, but he stopped short of calling for the or saying that the Russian ambassador to Ireland was likely to be expelled, even in the face of mounting calls from within his own party and within his own government. Yeah, when there are from, so many calls uh, from from Fianna Fáil backbenchers, we saw that petition yesterday that yeah. was signed by almost forty members of the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party. We've seen opposition parties all lining up this week to say that Riri Filatov should be sent with his bags packing. What is their explanation for why they haven't done that yet, other than that they only want to do it as part of an EU package as a whole? Well, there's that, but also Simon Coveney was making the point to me last night that for, from his point of view, he needs a line of communication to Moscow, um, particularly when he's dealing with the situation where there are Irish citizens still on the ground in, in Ukraine, uh, in Kiev, you know, which could be controlled by Russia by this time next week. Um, but also there are Irish citizens in Russia as well. And he wouldn't want to do any, and this is his rationale and his argument, he wouldn't want to do anything that would effectively shut down all communication with Moscow. He needs a line, uh, this is the line he kept saying, is he needs a line of communication into Moscow. Um, and he thinks that ultimately expelling the ambassador, this is his view at this moment mm. in time, would be something that Ireland could come to regret down the line. But he's not ruling it out. And I suppose, you know, if there's a move at an EU level that says that mm. all ambassadors um, in the 27 EU capitals should be sent home, It'd be very hard for Ireland to um, to not sign up to that. Because you, you could argue that sending home an ambassador would be a very symbolic gesture, but it's not tantamount to closing the embassy. And in fact, you know, Leo Varadkar was asked about this on, on Drive Time on RT on mm. Friday evening. He said, if you send home the ambassador, then the, the job is just taken up by the charge yeah. d'affaires, like the senior civil I mean, servant there anyway. So you, you still move, have really, it. Isn't it? I mean, it, I mean it's, it's the symbolism of it, I guess. Uh, and obviously... You know, everyone was quite appalled by the ambassador's uh, interview with David McCullough on the Six One News on Friday evening. Um, and I, I, you know, there was obviously another protest outside the embassy on Orwell Road in in Rathgar yesterday. So there is a strong uh, political consensus behind expelling um, him. There seems to be strong public support for that idea. But ho- uh, Simon Covey is holding back at this moment in time. Mm. Uh, we're also joining us, Judith, to go through this morning's papers by Lauren Boland, reporter from the Journal.ie. Lauren, good morning to you. Welcome to the programme. Um, there is so much in the papers that it's difficult to know uh, where to start. So maybe just let's start with an open-ended question of your reflections of where we are this morning and what you've seen in the papers. Yeah, absolutely. I think every day now this week when we open up the papers, it just seems to get worse and worse, doesn't it? And it's a it's a very it's a really harrowing situation looking, particularly the accounts from people who are living in Ukraine right now and who are who are seeing the the impact of this on ordinary life and how it has been completely upended. Um you know, and one one Ukrainian who spoke to the Sunday Business Post, he described the the difficulties accessing petrol, and this is as people are trying to flee the country, and you're looking at these long queues of cars trying to get out of the country, and on top of that, uh, these long queues trying to get into the petrol stations. Um, 
also fears that food will uh, be that, that there'll be food shortages that people will be looking at empty shelves in the shops um, that pharmacies some pharmacies are shut not all pharmacies are open you've got maybe a few pharmacies and in, in the town that he's describing you've got a few pharmacies open for a few hundred a few hundred thousand people um it's 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 harrowing to read that's you know it's difficult to imagine like, actually it, being it's, in it's that grim scenario. on so many fronts because i think people probably don't ever appreciate when it sets out that there's an invasion and then if you then have this this massive flux of people who want to get out of the country the, the amount of other knock-on things that there are last night like even seeing last night's tv news and you see people lining up at train stations trying to get out and get to poland and then the capacity of the trains versus the volume of people that need to get onto them that, that people don't ever think about the practicalities of trying to get out of a country and what it means to do that yeah and, and the united nations high commissioner for refugees is estimated now that several hundred thousand people have had to flee their homes many of those will be displaced within the country others will as you say have fled to countries like poland and, and moldova in particular also to countries like slovakia and romania which also border with ukraine um some people though of course are not being allowed to leave actually men between the ages of 18 and 60 have been told by the ukrainian government that they will not be allowed to leave the country mm. because they have to um to stay and to, to be available to fight in the war so we're seeing families being separated men bringing you know uh, families and children to the border and then they're having to stay behind while while their family members cross over um Hugh, there's there's so much in the papers by the way we will talk to kim Gupta, who's the uh, defense correspondent with the london independent in a few minutes he is in ukraine so we'll get the latest on uh, the the talk of of russia managing to make their way into towards uh, kharkiv and also then towards kiev and see how the defense is going there so we'll talk to him in a couple of minutes about the situation on the ground uh, but Hugh, there is so much in the papers that anything jump out for you this morning yeah there's, there's there's one thing in particular that i was interested in is comments by um the european affairs minister thomas Byrne in the in the business post i, I know you're speaking to him later but mm. but he he made the point that he had spoken to some of his colleagues in the EU who have spoken to people who have spoken with Putin and all of them are saying that he's changed in recent times um, that his condition has changed so he's effectively kind of calling into question his mental stability and there's a really good piece in the Sunday Times by Mark Bennett in Moscow who talks about um, some of the uh, some, some of what's been happening in Russia over the last two years and in particular Vladimir Putin has been kind of cut off from everyone because of coronavirus mm. and COVID-19 and the very strict measures put in place to protect him yes, from being infected. Yes, he's been very protectionist about he, his own personal been ex- health. He's been extremely yeah. isolated and we've seen these uh, meetings that he's been having with everyone from Sergei Lavrov to Emmanuel Macron at these incredibly long tables with with the uh, with, with Macron at one end and Putin at the other and even Lavrov who, who he works with on a daily basis mm. I imagine kept well away from Putin like there's this fascinating detail in this piece officials are being obliged to provide fecal samples several times a week to ensure they do not infect Putin and many Sorry, of those fe- me- fecal samples yes okay that's what it so for people who don't understand the biology that's that's their number twos it, correct yes uh, many of those who do meet him have to spend two weeks in self-isolation first so he, he's effectively withdrawn from the world quite considerably over the last two years and I mean anyone who's seen him on the television um, over the last few days, you know, it was suggested to me last night, for example, that, that Vladimir Putin was, you know, a lot of these messages were pre-recorded yeah. well in advance. Yeah, you could download, so the, the, even the, the declaration itself or the announcement of Thursday yeah. morning of the assault on Ukraine, if you download the video from the Kremlin website, you can see that the timestamp for when it was created mm. was Monday afternoon, which was the same day that he had had his hour-long rambling nonsensical yeah. complaint about Ukraine not really being a country and at then, all. And then there are the people that he's hanging out with. So some of the people who are in his inner circle now, and uh, you know, he's, he, he would have fallen out with a lot of people. There's one, a few individuals he fell out with when he ran for a third term in 2011, for example. Um, but one of the guys he's hanging out with, one trusted lieutenant, according to this piece in the Sunday Times, Nikolai Petrushev. He's the head of the Russian Security Council. He's known Putin since the 1970s when they were both KGB officers. Uh, Petrushev's views of the West as a crucible 
crucible of decadence, views the West as a crucible of decadence and has claimed that some European countries are legalizing animals, legalizing marriage with animals. So this is the kind of people that he's hanging out <coughs> with. Okay. And in those circumstances, you'd have to question, um, you know, t- to what extent he is... Um, Compass Mentis, I suppose. Well, for it, it also then maybe not to, to try and, and put any rationale or any uh, merit to, to what he's saying, but then if he's going uh, on the world's media with these inane uh, and completely bizarre ramblings mm. about there being genocide against Russian speakers in, yeah. in the eastern part and of the country, Nazis and it, drug addicts he, running, he running may Ukraine. actually believe it to be true. Correct. Um, that's a slightly unsettling note on which to bring in Kim Gupta, <laughs> the defence and diplomatic editor of the London Independent. Kim, uh, thank you again for talking to us. I know we spoke to you last week and at the time you were in Kiev and we, we didn't know really what Russia's intentions were going to be. Um, first of all, where in the country are you this morning? I am uh, still in Kiev. And how are things there? Have, have, have actually, have you been able to, to walk the streets for the last couple of days or are you observing the same curfew as everyone else in the city is being asked to do? Well, we, the, the curfew was extended um, from 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. to 36 hours, uh, while, uh, according to the authorities, they, they flushed out and dealt with Russian uh, fifth columnists and saboteurs. Uh, it was such a nice day today that I did go out for a, uh, for a walk and uh, had a chat with some of the Ukrainian checkpoints um, with my press card. But it's, it's, but it's a pretty quiet morning or pretty morning and afternoon so far and and the last night was also compared to the previous two nights um comparatively fairly quiet um is that maybe a sense that that the ukrainian defense forces are doing quite a good job at maybe keeping the russians at at bay or or where do you think stand right now in the battle not only for kiev but also some of the other major cities well i think uh, i mean the first question is that yes they had done quite well in in kiev and, and in some other major cities but then that begs the question, you know, what will the Russians do next? And if Mr. Putin runs out of patience, and you've just been talking about how perhaps his mind isn't completely balanced, then what will he do next? Now, we do know that they have been uh, moving quite heavy uh, weaponry in this direction. You're talking about uh, barrack launchers, we're talking about 120 mm grads and uh, heavy mortars, how it's... Uh, and and two uh, two Russian armies, the the, the 41st CAA and the 1st uh, Guards Tank Army. Now, um, the, if they get frustrated, if they feel they need to have a a a, a you know a, a signal symbolic victory in Kiev, you know, then those heavy heavy stuff may come into play. But at the moment, what we have been having uh, are um, are uh, missile strikes in the night, some artillery strikes. Uh, you know some gun battles in the outskirts of the city, but as yet they have not been able to enter the centre. Um, talk to us about the symbolism and the the meaning, uh, how meaningful it is. The idea that Russia may be bringing in thermobaric missiles. For those who don't understand the, the nature of that sort of artillery, what do they mean and how symbolic is it? Well, it was the symbolic and and, and very potent, of course. You know, um, still find it difficult to believe that <clears throat> they would use that kind of of of. Um, of, of Grozny methods, if you like, uh, in, in a city like Kiev. But, you know, these are very um, uh, heavy. They're, they're basically area denial weaponry, so they're not for precision strikes. They're for clearing stretches. Uh, Thermobaric is, is, you know, which, which would basically, it's temperature controlled. It does terrible things to the human body. But it's not just that. Uh, it's all the, the other stuff, you know, the 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 Malka uh, howitzers and the and the self-propelled tube and mortars. You know, I mean, th- these are all really there for use against um, you know armor, uh, used against uh, fortification, 
Uh, and so if they use them, then there obviously there will be uh, quite high civilian casualties. But they haven't done that yet, um, and so we'll have to wait and see. Um, there's also been a lot of talk by other Western governments. I know Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor this morning, talked about supplying more weaponry and arms to Ukraine to defend itself. There has been some talk of being able to deploy some uh, British-supplied arms. Are we seeing any evidence on the ground yet of that being used by, by the Ukrainians to defend themselves? Oh, yeah, they've certainly used the Javelin, the US supplied, and, and, and the NLA, the British supplied anti-tank. Uh, we've seen that, you know, quite um, quite uh, uh, effectively in, in, in lots of cases against uh, Russian armour. Um, the In fact, Javelin have just taken out an ad saying, Javelin, the best distributor of T-72 parts. And, uh, you know, so they are, they are being effective. Uh, they need more, it's, it's, it's coming more, and more and more are coming. And of course, the Germans have now started supplying. So there, there is um, ammunition, uh, weapons coming through. Uh, and with that, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainian armies would do, uh, continue to do well. But we should point out, though, that while we're talking about Kiev still uh, resisting, uh, you know, the Russian forces have gone into Kharkiv, the country's second city they, they appear to have reached the center now if they do manage to to mm. capture Kharkiv, then that is a, a significant blow to ukraine mm. so you know we, we shouldn't really start crowing too much about um how badly the russians may be doing yeah um I, i'm just struck by the idea that you know th- there's been many surreal things that we've had to say in the last week but the idea of uh, there being advertisements about which kit or which which line of of uh, armory is best to take out a family of Russian battle tanks it is just a very surreal thing to have to be entertaining. Um, I, I, with I, I'm conscious that you might be it might be difficult for you to answer this because I know that obviously you, you've been wrapped up doing your own work as well, and because the curfew is there, that it's been very difficult to get out and about. But to what extent do you know are, are the, the Ukrainian people able to still? Followed a full extent what's going on is domestic media domestic broadcast channels are, are they still running or uh, how easy is it for the locals to keep up to speed with what's happening well well the curfew really only came into effect today and, and it'll, it'll go by tomorrow morning um the uh, uh no i mean the the, the, the media is, here is quite vibrant um you know they <clears throat> and this continuous uh, uh continuous um stuff uh from the various outlets <clears throat> what what has happened, of course, is that the uh, President Zelensky had shut down uh, many of the opposition uh, television channels, which had been part of the complaint against him, because a lot of them were um, yeah, Russian language and, and uh, if you like, pro-Moscow channels. That's mm-hmm. one of the, you know, that's one of the uh, uh, accusations against him by Mr. Putin and others. But the Ukrainian media is is in a quite vibrant and is. And he's putting out stuff now, as happens in wartime, um, you know, a, a, a mixture of, 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 of nationalism and also wanting to be optimistic means that the, the accounts they're putting up may not be necessarily totally true. Um, but at the moment, they're certainly, you know, pumping it out. Um, final question before I let you go, Kim, and let you back to, to your duties there. Um, does the deployment of um, foreign supplied and foreign equipped um, weaponry to Ukraine, is there any sense that that might sort of raise the diplomatic temperature, that, that if Russia right now feels like it may only be fighting against one, inverted commas, enemy, um, will there be a sense that if foreign countries are not putting boots on the ground, but if they're supplying equipment to Ukraine, that it does feel like, by proxy, Russia feels like it's taking on the world? Or was that the case already anyway? 
Well, I mean, if you remember when, when Mr. Putin made his speech that night, uh, talking about recognizing uh, the People's Republic of Donetsk and Duhansk, um, uh, and basically uh, declaring war on Ukraine, he did warn that uh, there will be terrible consequences for outside powers if they intervened. Well, <coughs> well they have done. Um, not boots on the ground, and that was never expected, but certainly weapons-wise they have. And um, there hasn't been much Mr. Putin could do about it. And of course, in, in instead what we have seen is a, a pretty crippling sanctions against uh, against Russia, perhaps you know far more than many people expected. So from from that point of view, um, uh, there's not an awful lot Mr. Putin can do. What's he going to do? Attack a NATO country? So at at the moment, you know, the, the West will keep on, as far as I know, keep on supplying weaponry and the sanctions. And it, it seems that either Mr. Putin, who just before he invaded, had a huge amount of leverage. Um, once he pushed the button, uh, and, and, and unless he has a quick victory, that leverage will, will already is, 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 is dissipating. Um, Kim, thanks very much for joining us this morning. We'll let you get back to your duties. Hopefully you can stay safe, and maybe we'll talk to you again in News Talk over the coming days to see how things are going. Uh, very much appreciate your time uh, this lunchtime. That's Kim Gupta, who's the Defence and Diplomatic Editor uh, of the London Independent. Um, I see a reporter just in the last little while, and Lauren, this goes back to what you were saying uh, before we spoke to Kim about uh, the refugee crisis that this creates. Uh, the current estimated total now, as estimated by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, is 368,000 people uh, trying to leave the country at the very least, and that continues to rise. But that's that doesn't account, obviously, for the number of people that are displaced um, inside the country. Um, Kim mentioned the, the prospect of what Western countries can do. After the break, we will talk more about what small countries can, like Ireland can do and whether it is really appropriate for Ireland to think about getting more military in cases like this. Don't go away. Gavin Riley with you on the record this Sunday morning, still joined by Hugh O'Connell and Lauren Boland in studio. Um, Lauren, there's a lot of pieces in today's papers about the, the sort of sanctions that Ireland or Europe uh, might pursue, some of which has been overtaken by announcements last night by Ursula von der Leyen. You might bring us up to speed on, on what actually has been announced. Sure. So over the last week, we've seen these kind of rolling packages of sanctions being announced. I mean, before the weekend where we stood with the EU sanctions was that, um, you know, targets on Russia's financial sector, um, on the, the energy sector, which is one of their biggest markets, on uh, a ban on the sale of aircraft and equipment to Russian airlines, um, as well as kind of uh, limiting access to, to, to technology that they might need mm. and and visas for diplomats. Um, now what we've seen last night is um, a kind of decision made or nearly a decision made on the question of SWIFT. And for people who don't know, um, that's... Yeah, SWIFT is one of those, yeah. those buzzwords that we've heard a lot about in the last three days that no one had ever heard of before Thursday morning and now everyone has a view on. So bring us up to speed on what SWIFT exactly. is. Exactly, it's just come out of nowhere and now it's, and now it's on the front pages. Um, so SWIFT is, to put it in kind of simple terms, it's this international system for banks to essentially communicate with each other and it's, it's an integral part of our international banking system. And the debate has been around whether or not Russia would be, or Russian banks would be, would be be blocked from using it which would have implications for the financial sector um the there was big push from ukraine for that to be enacted from the start of this week it was among um you know kind of uh, lists of, of, of calls from ukrainian embassies and ukrainians on the ground um to block russia out of the swift system um but it was one of the sl- one of the areas where the eu and the us were quite slow to act on because there was resistance from some countries um 
to to put that into place. There was sort of a, an agreement seems to have been come to now as of last night where certain Russian banks will be removed from the SWIFT payment system. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, she described it as something that would cripple Putin's ability to finance his war machine. Um, and that came after kind of talks with the US, with countries like Germany, France, Italy and Canada after kind of getting everyone on board that had initially been resistant. Mm. It was something that Ireland, we had been backing kind of since the start. Politicians had been out kind of coming in support of it um, and I suppose that's one of the ways that Ireland has been kind of signalling support for sanctions against mm. Russia um, Hugh so there's been a, a, some EU unity in all of this and we've seen Germany change direction in the last couple of mm. days about the, this this idea of expelling some Russian banks from SWIFT you could argue that uh, the EU in, in acting as concert or in concert has been trying to be as effective as possible and then you can also argue that because everyone is committed in principle to doing all these things in unity with each other that it means the countries who do want to go further countries mm-hmm. that wanted to have an outright ban from SWIFT or who wanted to ban Russia from their airspace don't really feel like they are, feel somewhat constrained from doing so which maybe means that some countries actually nearly being held back by this idea for unity across Europe. Well, yeah, I mean, Ireland would be one of them, right? Because um, the, Ireland was very clear that it, it wanted to, to ban Russia from SWIFT um, very early on and hasn't been able to achieve unanimity on that until it would appear last night. And even then, it's probably not going as far as Ireland had had, had wanted in, ter- in terms of a kind of a, a you know, it's it selected banks, it's does carve-outs and so on and mm. so forth. And there was obviously significant resistance from Germany, I think, primarily because Germany is concerned about the payment system that underpins the payment mm. for the gas that they get from Russia. And th- there's also concerns that because there's um, there's an, a rival version of SWIFT which is very popular in China and that mm. if you were to kick Russia out of it then it could expedite their use of the Chinese system which yes. then undermines the Western control of global finances into well, the future. It, it does and, and it also prov- I suppose undermines the West's ability to uh, track financial transactions um, you know for, for surveillance and intelligence purposes so um, I you know I think that I'm minded uh, to, or I recall rather, the, the the Ukrainian foreign minister tweeting at some point last week that unless uh, EU countries, I'm paraphrasing now, but effectively, uh, unless EU countries banned SWIFT um, or Russia from accessing SWIFT, they'd have blood on their hands. And SWIFT now is only coming into the, this ban is only going to come into effect in the next few days. This is going to have we're going to have a third package of sanctions, and you would wonder whether a one. Uh, package of sanctions at the very start that covered all of the things that are now going to be covered across three rounds of sanctions that have been uh, painstakingly negotiated and put together over several days might have had more of an effect um, than dragging this out for several days. Obviously, you know, at at the time when the Russian tanks Mm -hmm. are rolling in, the bombs are falling. Uh, people are dying. I suppose on the flip side, Lauren, that there's there's an argument to be made that they could have done all these things straight out the box on day one. But if all those things were done on Thursday morning and it didn't stop Russia from invading Ukraine, then it leaves the West without very many other options for what you do as some kind of punishment or at least as a slap <laughs> on the wrist. Yeah, and I suppose now that SWIFT has come into play, one of the last things is, as we were discussing earlier, what are we doing now about the Russian diplomats who are still in Europe? Um, and I think that'll be, over the next week, really the, the big topic at hand. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there are mounting calls for that here. I think um, I think people's frustration there is that sort of sense of why hasn't it been done already? You are right, of course, that um, if you bring everything out of the bat on day one, where do you go from there? Um, I think Joe Biden in his speech um, to the US on Thursday, he was very he was very hesitant when he was asked about SWIFT. He His response was sort of along the lines of, well, the package of sanctions that we have announced is sufficient. It's going mm. to be it's going to be a big deterrent. Um, he was during the press conference after 
his speech he was he was pushed a lot on you know why aren't why is, wasn't the US kind of looking at measures like SWIFT why wasn't it doing you know various other kind of measures um, and Joe Biden kind of kept repeating that same line of oh you know these sanctions are sort of unparalleled so they're going to be a massive hit to Russia um, these are going to have a you know be, be monumental but I suppose critics would say look that I mean, this this is an absolutely unprecedented mm. kind of war I hate to use that buzzword mm. but um, you know that this is an absolutely dire situation and, and it's not the time to be holding back uh, Just once we were um, on our last ad break by the way some news developed that now there are some reports of Russia allowing its uh, special operatives to be used as part of this assault which would effectively mean maybe that that you could also consider Belarus to be party to this invasion of Ukraine it's not just uh, Belarus allowing itself to be used as a base but rather now getting involved piggybacking on, on Russia's efforts um, Hugh we spoke in part one about neutrality and what people understood neutrality to be and how you can be politically you can take a side but militarily you can decide to sort of sit in your hands um, I'm going to be accused now of sort of trying to, to march Ireland up a bit of a hill in, in even raising this topic uh, and I don't mean to but I think we just have to have a, a broader conversation we, we already had one slightly after the, the Russian military exercises just off the coast of Cork mm. um, a couple of weeks ago. But that if there are now some entities in the world who don't give much of a jot for international borders and who are inclined to see everyone who thinks differently as a threat to them, it sort of begs some question as to whether Ireland can really get by in a case where it underinvests in its defence like we currently do. Well, I mean, I think any reading of the, the reports of the Defence Forces Commission would would show that Ireland is incapable of defending itself. I mean, that's an admission itself by the Irish Defence Forces. And, you know, my understanding of this is, is limited, I must admit. I'm not an expert in this area, but the experts I have spoken to in this area have said that Ireland is unique in a sense that it is, it is a neutral country and we make much of our neutrality. But most neutral countries in this in the world are able to defend themselves, whereas Ireland is reliant, for example, on the RAF um, in you know certain instances where um, it has no surveillance system, for example, so it couldn't monitor uh, the Russian military exercises off the um, off the southwest coast to the extent to which they, they might, other countries might have been able to do um, and so that that is a, a weakness within uh, the country's defense capability uh, and military capability just to be the the, the neutral country that it, it professes to be or it wants to be and mm. it proclaims to be and it, it makes a virtue out of, out of very often um, so you know, I think that that's a conversation that's now started off the back of that commission report but obviously I think it'll have to be expedited in circumstances where we mm. are seeing this threat on the um, on the eastern frontier of Europe and um, it's one I think that's not going to go away and obviously if Putin um, or if Russia takes control of Ukraine the question is then you know what happens next and, mm. and to what extent are the, the countries that border Ukraine some, some, the Baltics and, and are you know some of which are most of which in fact are members of the European Union mm. and members of NATO what happens there and what sort of conflict that could trigger and in those circumstances I think Ireland really does need to have a, a, a mature conversation about its defence capability and its ability to defend mm. itself and by the Defence Force's own admission they cannot do that Yeah uh, and we should distinguish again between you know increasing spending on, on defending ourselves and joining any military alliances like the, the likes of NATO for example yeah, the two are separate they yeah, are exclusive and, and are often conflated in public debate um, just further on, on the idea of Belarus now becoming party to this Russian invasion um, Emmanuel Macron the French president has tweeted inside the last five minutes he says that last night he asked uh, Alexander Lukashenko uh, the president of Belarus to ensure the withdrawal of Russian troops from the territory of his own country uh, the brotherhood between the Belarusian and Ukrainian peoples should push Belarus to 
refused to become a vassal and a de facto accomplice of Russia in the war against Ukraine. That's the latest from the President of France, who um, let it not be overlooked, not to, to undermine his bona fides, but let it not be overlooked that he's also facing re-election later this year and it is useful for him to, to appear more like a, a global statesman. Um, Lauren, just on that note about um, Ireland making sure that it can defend itself versus the question mark of joining military alliances, we've seen other countries which are neutral, ones which are closer to Russia, the likes of Finland, for example, now openly entertaining the idea that it may have to join NATO simply to defend itself. And that kind of does mean that maybe there should be some scope for rethinking positions in other neutral countries like Austria or indeed like Ireland. Yeah, I mean, going back to what he was talking about as well, that that timing of that commission report on the Defence Forces, it was almost uncanny. Mm. Um, And I think that's going to shape these discussions now as well. Um, You know, thinking about neutrality and and the position of Ireland and and other countries in Europe, um, you know, I think some people would hold very strongly to our position of neutrality and we'll put that uh, at the utmost importance. Um, that it, that has started a lot of conversations this week, I think, around people talking about, you know, or thinking about what's, um, what's appropriate to be discussing as well when, you know, people in Ukraine are kind of going through a time of great suffering. Um, you know, but some people have kind of hit out at... Um, conversations, you know, from um, say, positions put forward by the Irish anti-war movement um, where we just come out and kind of spoken very strongly against the idea of Ireland joining NATO. Um, some people have raised issue with that and said that's that this perhaps this isn't actually the time to be having that debate. Um, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of debate and strong feeling, obviously, on both sides of this in terms of both of whether Ireland or not should mm-hmm. join NATO and, and also in terms of increasing our defence funding. Um, Lucinda Creighton in the Sunday Business Post um, has an opinion piece where um, she writes about how, um, you know, both hard right and hard left um, positions ha- have both had sympathies with Putin for different mm. reasons, which which is, which is bizarre when you think about it. Um, but the the point she makes also sort of hits out at that kind of anti um, the Irish anti war movement around that idea of um, you know withholding from NATO. Yeah. Um, I do think you know there are conversations to be had as well about um, the enduring you know military mindedness of countries like the United States. Is that what Ireland wants to align itself with? You know, because of the effects that um, that has on the rest of the world. And indeed, people who have, you know, suffered as a result of that. Um, It's difficult to know where we're going to go from here on this. Yeah, and of course, then there's always the argument that if you become part of a military alliance, then you make yourself a target or that you you bring yourself into a theatre of conflict that you otherwise manage to avoid by being a neutral country. Um, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky has tweeted inside the last hour that Ukraine has submitted an application against Russia to the International Court of Justice. Uh, Russia must be held accountable for manipulating the notion of genocide to justify aggression. We request an urgent decision ordering Russia to cease military activity now. We expect the trials to start next week. That's uh, Volodymyr Zelensky who is Still joined in studio by Lauren Boland of the Journal.ie and by Hugh O'Connell of the Irish and Sunday Independence. And we will be talking to uh, Thomas Byrne, the uh, Minister for European Affairs, after 12 o'clock. So we will stop talking about uh, events in Ukraine, hopefully for the next 10 minutes or so, at least to deal with some of the other stories that are in today's papers. Um, Hugh, I'll start with the, the other story. I think it's the only non-Ukraine story on the front page of, of any of today's major papers, which is below the fold in the Business Post, uh, a latest Red Sea poll, the usual monthly tracking poll, by the Business Post. Um, they have been taking these monthly polls or bi-monthly polls since 2005. Never before has Fine Gael been as low as 20%. Yeah, it's um, it's quite a result. Uh, and um, I suppose it's quite a uh, an indictment of where Fine Gael is at at the moment um, in terms of the uh, its popularity amongst the general public. Um, 
and I think it'll be an, of enormous concern to, to Leo Varadkar now. Of course, there's the uh, the old trope that politicians don't pay attention to polls, but <laughs> <laughs> indeed. <laughs> the reason why they keep having to tell us that is yeah. because they keep having to deny Correct. that they're so yeah. interested and in I polls. Think, Gavin, uh, if my phone's activity on a Saturday night is anything like your phone's activity on a Saturday <laughs> night when a poll lands, I think that's a totally bogus. But anyway, um, I think that, uh, look, th- th- you know, this is... And Daniel Murray is writing about this today in in the uh, in his analysis in the Business Post. This is one of the problems with Fine Gael that it's been in government for so long that the people are just tired and they link the crises in housing and health uh, inextricably with Fine Gael and mm. believe it is their fault um, and, and want the party not to be in government. And indeed, Fine Gael did not want to be in government. Um, you know, uh, after the last election, but the pandemic changed everything from from that uh, point of, from from their perspective, and they uh, they did a deal. But we're we're seeing that you know Sinn Fein is just thirty three percent. It's been at that level in the last three Red Sea polls and the Sunday Business polls. It is unquestionably the most popular party in the mm. country. It is at this moment in time unquestionably on course to win more seats than any other party in the next general election. Uh, but that election is far away. Um, I do think it's probably not going to take place until 2025. Yeah. So three it, years from now, so which is plenty of time now, for things uh, to change. A lot can change. Uh, the fortunes of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil could change. And um, one of the most interesting polls, and I would say this, you would say, but one of the most interesting poll results I saw in recent times was the uh, Ireland Thinks poll, the first Ireland Thinks poll for Sunday Independent uh, about two months ago. You would say that, though. I would say yeah. that, though, of course. <laughs> But we, we asked the question as to whether people would favour uh, a government made up of the current uh, coalition parties or a government made up of, say, for example, Sinn Féin with Fianna Fáil tagged onto mm. it. And the preference of the public, uh, by a, a marginal uh, amount, but n- nonetheless, the, the, the majority favoured um, the current coalition. Yeah. So, you know, I think that... Uh, Ultimately, this this government will be judged on its record. Its record to date uh, is not great in terms of uh, it's great in terms of I suppose or not well great. But I mean that's it's a judgment that has to be made. I guess but it's in ambitious. terms of handling the pandemic, yeah. uh, it's done reasonably well in terms of the uh, agenda it has. As you said, very ambitious in terms of results remains to be seen. Mm. Um, one of the, but it's, it's very, it, yeah. it would be very concerning to people in Finnegan, and certainly people in Finnegan I spoke to last night were, were pretty concerned about this what, because it's a, it's a, sorry to interrupt you, it's yeah, a totemic sure. moment, you know, the lowest ever yeah. in a poll that everyone pays close attention but, to. But it, it, even that being said, though, it's still in second place. And because, you know, you can focus on the fact that, that Sinn Fein has continued to record 33%, I think that's four polls in a row now that it's at 33%, which is its highest recording ever in a Red Sea poll. And Lauren, like we said, in this poll, 20% is Fine Gael's lowest. It sort of masks the other story there, which is that Fianna Fáil, which still is the party that holds the office of Taoiseach, is still only at 17%, even if that is up two points on the last one. And maybe to that end, if, if you were saying that Fine Gael are now inextricably in- attached to crises in uh, housing and health, then if you go back to the last time that Fianna Fáil was in government, then you could put the same at their door as well. I was quite surprised, actually, by Fianna Fáil's position in this in this polling. Um, I think it's interesting in the context of the conversations that now feel like they were a long time ago. But what was the the big story a few weeks back around the cost of living, mm. um, and how that was that was a, a major problem for the government. That's kind of been eclipsed now by Ukraine. Um, but I think. You know, I'm surprised that Fianna Fáil perhaps didn't maybe take more of a hit yeah. over that. Well, actually, it's worth bearing that in mind, actually, because this poll would have been taken uh, in a five or six day window before Ukraine was mm, monopolising mm. the news agenda. So people were still worried about the, the cost of living. And Sinn Féin didn't necessarily make any gains, but Fianna Fáil didn't exactly break out of the current position that they're in either. No, and I mean, perhaps one reason for that, maybe Tanisha Leo Radker, Fine Gael, as 
his brief of minister for you know enterprise trade and employment mm-hmm. i think he was the one maybe out for the government a lot talking about this sort of thing perhaps he maybe took the blunt there for finnegale maybe a bit um or took the hit for finnegale there a bit but you know i think um i was i was still surprised though, cause i think ultimately Michal martin as Taoiseach, you know he's the face of the government he's the one you're going to associate mm-hmm. for the ordinary people a lot of this with um richard Caldwell in the sunday business post he um he makes the point that perhaps the the support for Fianna Fáil is around a kind of um, a coming, a coming back to the fold of voters who who would once have voted for who who would have voted for Fianna Fáil in the last election, um, and who who then started to break away, um, but but who are now kind of returning a bit, and, mm. and maybe that's where that's where that support is coming from. I mean, the changes are marginal in, yeah. in terms of the mm. monthly trend, or in terms of the monthly changes. I mean, Fine Gael down one, Peter Fall up two, uh, Sinn Féin static, yeah, Greens down, down one. one. So the but, government parties are still unchanged yeah, as, a, as a collective. But, but the trend is, is unquestionable. Like mm. Sinn Féin in the ascendancy mm. on course for to be the largest party but can they put together a government when you consider the, the fact that Sinn Féin d- doesn't actually quite get relative to the number of seats that it has it actually it gets a disproportionately small share of dole time because it has mm. to share time at leaders questions every week with, with the Labour Party <laughs> which only has seven TDs and the Social Democrats only have six mm. I, I don't know what to start thinking about the failure of those parties to even even approach getting towards double digits that they only ever seem to be hovering around five or six percent you would think that if there was a vehicle or if there was opposition to the government that at least it might be shared a little bit more proportionally rather than Sinn Féin hoovering up everything well I, I think Sinn Féin are supposed more almost anti-government than the other opposition parties Labour and the Social Democrats Sinn Féin make a virtue out of standing up and telling you why you know this, this week alone for example uh, Mary Lou Macdonald's very strong criticism of, of Fianna Fáil and Micheál Martin is corrupt mm. in the dole um, you know, they, they try and tie these parties to what they consider to be failed policies that have not served this country well over the last decade. Sorry, over the, over the last several decades and in Fine Gael's case over the last decade. So I think that that is, you know, and again, I hate to harp back to the, to the Sunday Independent analysis, but <laughs> no, Kevin, Co- Kevin Cunningham, <laughs> the Ireland Things poster, has identified this thing where people are not so much, you know, they're not supporting Sinn Féin because they think Sinn Féin are right. great. They're supporting Sinn Féin because they best capture their feelings towards Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So they, it's just funneling a, a desire for change yeah. and they're just and, going uh, for the most And Sinn Féin makes, makes a virtue out of not being Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in a way that Labour and the Social Democrats don't quite yeah. frankly. The other thing I think was interesting about that, and we'll draw a line under it there, is, is the idea that if Sinn Féin gets so much of that vote and it cannibalises the vote that might go to other parties that mm. could help it in the government the likes of the Social Democrats or maybe the Labour Party if they could reconcile that that then who are they going to govern with because they're not going to get an overall majority by themselves so no. you're making a virtue of calling Fianna Fáil corrupt and then you might have to go knocking on their door to say would, yeah, you, you, would you like to form you, a government? You might well yeah you might have to knock on through the girl's door you know Stranger things have happened. Um, there, one other story which I think it caught all of our eyes that we wanted to have a little bit of a discussion on before the, the time runs out in this hour, Lauren. Uh, page 15 of the Sunday Times, a feature about the permacrisis, uh, outlining this idea that we seem in the last couple of months to have gone from concern at COP26 about how the you know the world was short to be on fire and that there was an um, impending climate crisis. Then we've gone to another wave of uh, COVID-19 through the Omicron variant and the, the COVID crisis and no sooner have we gotten out of that and feel like that maybe COVID is the worst is over us than now we have World War Three possibly in our doorsteps. And this idea that it seems now more than ever that we are genuinely lurching from one existential crisis to another. 
Yeah, I have a few thoughts about this. I think, you know, the point that's that's made in the, in the piece is that um, it says it feels as though the armbands have come off and we've been cast once more into the whirlpool of history um, with events swirling rapidly in a way that none of us can predict or make sense of. Um, I think that's obviously very true. I also think it's interesting to think about it, though, in a, in a global context where this is perhaps a very, um, an almost kind of sheltered perspective of, oh, you know, this idea that, you know, just now we're sort of being hit with this barrage of, of global yeah. events um, when obviously when, for, when there's been wars in other parts of, course, of the world. Of course, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's almost, it's a very privileged position to sort of come at it from. Um, nonetheless, though, it, it is true for the experience of people living here or, or in kind of Western Europe. Um, there's also, it makes the point that, you know, perhaps, um, you know, it kind of talks about the the role of social media and that and how we're so tied to our phones and you can, and, and this idea of doom scrolling where there's just one mm. terrible thing coming up after another. Um, the piece kind of ends on a sort of hopeful note suggesting that, okay, we can put our phones away and, you know, we're, um, it, it actually goes as far to say you know, we find ourselves lucky enough not to be in Kyiv or Odessa. Um, of course, that's going to be no consolation to the people who are actually over there. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think even and and it mentions you know we can we can kind of throw off our our our, our viral shackles. Um, again, I think you know people might agree that putting down your phone doesn't doesn't get rid of the anxiety mm. that comes from reading all of these things. You know, it, it's very difficult to to actually put away Twitter and, or put away Instagram. Um, but even once you do, uh, the anxiety kind of doesn't leave you. You know, you're, we're all kind of carrying this around now every day. Um, th- there are bigger questions about whether we can really justifiably lurch from one crisis to another and then pretend that one crisis ends when I know that you're a specialist in climate reporting. And it's not as if that crisis just went away because COP26 wrapped up. I'm afraid we're going to have to completely leave it there. We're out of time this hour. Big thank you to uh, Lauren Boland, reporter with the Journal. And Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent.